It must have been a momentary lapse of reason on Pastor Eric's part to turn the service over to Hunter and I. <laughs> Not even sure where he is this morning. Probably ought to be here for a lot of reasons. But you're here. You'll be the beneficiaries because this will be hopefully a memorable, memorable service for all the right reasons. The last time I spoke here at Eagle, I did what I always do. I walk around. I don't like to leave people out. I want people to know that I, I see everybody and I, w- I want to address everybody. It's what I do. Uh, it drives the tech people a little bit crazy, uh, especially when you're trying to project something you know, online and you know, it can look a little funny. And Ben swore to me that he would rewire my guitar if I didn't stand still. Uh, <laughs> But it's not going to happen, and I'll just, I've got a lot of guitars, so I'll just bring a different one. And No, he didn't really say that. It's a, really a privilege and kind of a weight, a good weight. It's a privilege to be here, to be able to address you today. It's, um, I've been looking forward to it. I'm excited. I think the Lord has something uh, for you. He definitely had something for me in the preparation and uh, let me introduce myself. If you don't know me, my name's Ethan Erstein. My family and I, we've been members here at Eagle since 2008, and I think we have a picture of my family. There we are. They're awesome. My wife, Karen. Uh, my daughter, Esther, is 20, and my son, Caleb, is 17. And uh, they, we've, So we've got some history here with Eagle. I work for a religious organization. It's a missionary organization called Crew. Some of you have maybe heard of it. And uh, I, but I don't work directly with our target audiences. I work with our staff. I work in HR. So I do things like I, I mediate uh, differences of opinion and arguments. I know that doesn't happen, or you, that might surprise you that that happens in a Christian organization. It does. There's lots of those. I, uh, when staff gets sideways, uh, you know, in terms of their own behavior or, or something else, when they're depressed, when they have the loss of a loved one, um, I conduct hiring interviews. Uh, I pursue, like, if there's a, some sort of a harassment or misconduct claim, I, I will lead those investigations. And uh, believe it or not, it might shock you, but I actually really love this kind of work because I just see God at work in those types of things. I, I feel like that's, those are the times and the places where he is the most active. And I love seeing people decide to square up their shoulders to a problem and trust God with it and seeing God do what only God can do. It's awesome. I love that. And it's very scary and it totally relates to what we're going to be talking about this morning. So when I was growing up, I grew up in the state of Washington and we used to go on vacation every other year or so to a place called Camano Island, which is on the coast of Washington. Now, if you're not familiar with the coast of Washington, it's not like a solid coastline. It's kind of broken up. There's a lot of islands and little inlets and bays and stuff like that. All of that makes up what's called Puget Sound. And Camino Island is on Puget Sound, nestled into the middle of these. I think there's a picture there. So these trips, here's what we would do. Here's what, this is the 70s. So we would pile into this bright green Chevy pickup truck with a camper on it, which we lovingly named Kermit. Um, we would pile into Kermit. All of our, the things that we would need for the next three or four days would be stuffed into this camper. We rode in the camper. This was the 70s, so we didn't do seatbelts. We just all piled in there and rattled around like BBs in a can. 
And we made the three or four hour trip out to the coast, out to Commander Island, where we rented a house for a few days. And uh, from the moment that we got there, the rules would relax, right? We had a lot of rules. Some of them were fueled by, you know, not such great things on my parents' part. We're in a good place now. It's all been talked about. But um, the rules would relax. And me and my two younger sisters and my three cousins, we spilled out of that green truck and out onto the beach. And there was like a couple of miles on either side of this house. And there were, there were other houses and other people there, of course. We couldn't get our shoes off fast enough. And we would race out onto this beach where it was like a veritable playground of things that you could do, right? It must have been partially a vacation for our parents, too, because they didn't have to deal with us. They only saw us when we were hungry or injured, <laughs> and sometimes not even then. We, we would do all kinds of stuff. So the, the coast, the, the, the tides come in and out pretty dramatically, right? So every day, the tide would go out, and it would reveal these enormous mud flats. So you could just venture out. You'd sink up to your calf sometimes in just this slime. It was awesome. We, you could dig for clams. We found jellyfish, sometimes on purpose, sometimes on accident. There were channels in the middle of it where sometimes you'd even see mud sharks and occasionally a porpoise or something like that would kind of get stuck in the, in the channel and would have to wait there until the, until the water came back. Um, there was so much driftwood on the beach that you could build, like, not forts, but, like, picture mansions, right? Like, and the, the raw materials were around you, right? You didn't even have to go anywhere. It's all right there. A little bit of ingenuity and, you know, digging out some sand, and we'd pile up. We built these little towns all over the place. We swam. We had access to a rowboat. Again, our parents, I can't believe they did this. They just let us go out in the rowboat. and We played in the tidal flats. We ate so much sugar and drank so much soda. It was just sickening. All those rules kind of went away. We uh, went to bed late, dirty, tired, and typically pretty happy. When I think about freedom, that's one of those times that I think about. It was really fun to be a kid at that time. And, and I really, that, that memory is really, really precious to me. Now, I'm 51 now, and as I look back on it, I realize freedom's not exactly free, right? It, those things don't just happen. The parents have to, they have to create that, right? They have, to, they have to provide. There's a cost that goes along with this. If you don't believe me, just ask Clark Griswold. <laughs> that whole movie franchise is based on that reality. Vacations is a tricky thing. It's a little risky. There's a lot to it. You have to put up with people that you may or may not like that much. I know that would never happen here, but, you know, hypothetically, maybe you don't get along with all of your family members as well as you would like. You have to budget money. You've got to take time off work. It turns out that the freedom we were experiencing, it's not exactly free. And what we're talking about today is freedom. We're going to talk about freedom. I'm going to pray for us right now. Jesus, Lord, would you take us to a place of freedom? Would you take us to a place where we could really see you come through for us? Would you take us to a place where we are willing to walk into the things that you have for us, regardless of what that might mean? Would you give us that kind of faith? Because that's, that's what that kind of freedom is all about. 
Would you help us to have that kind of courage and would you allow us in your goodness and mercy to know you that well? Uh, Lord, use me, please, to, to speak words that would draw your people to you. I pray you would strike anything that I might say that isn't of you. Strike that from their memory. Lord, I pray you would blot that out and amplify everything that you want them to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. We went to the Chris Stapleton concert last night. It was awesome. There was a lot of people smoking pot uh, out where we were sitting. So if I do say something crazy, I'm blaming it on that. I don't do that kind of thing at all. And my wife was with me. I was stone cold sober the, the whole night. But if, I do, if something crazy comes out of my mouth, let's just pin it on that. And don't tell Eric. Most of us would like to be free to a point. Most of us want to be free, kind of. We have a vision of like coming and going and doing the things we want and kind of having a sense of agency over our own lives. And the thought of that is really attractive right up until you realize what it costs. Mike Tyson actually captured this really well when he said everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. It's true. This is one reason why I think it's, there are a lot of people who know God but have a hard time moving into the things that God has for them. Uh, because to move into those things, it requires a lot. There's a cost that goes along with that. But inside that cost is the benefit, and it really comes down to what we're willing to do. You know, what, how much is it worth to you? Slavery, or captivity, if you prefer that word, holds a lot of allure for us, being held captive. It's really important that we acknowledge that. And it really it's, it applies almost universally. The things that we do that box us in, it's doing something for you, right? Y'all are not stupid. We do the things that we do for reasons. Even if those reasons get disconnected from our, like, what we're thinking. We always have reasons to do the things that we do. But sometimes the things that we do, they box us in and they become prisons. Some of the things that, like being captive... Some of the things that it provides, it includes like predictability, right? It's predictable. It can provide a provision of needs, and those needs can be wide-ranging. It could include material needs. It might include relational needs. It could include emotional needs. They provide a measure of comfort, sometimes a reprieve from pain. Slavery or captivity is often the result, almost always the result, of mishandled fear. So as we, talk, as, we, as we talk about freedom, there's going to be two other key words that are going to be really important to this discussion, and that is one is fear, and the other one is faith. So freedom is where, where we want to go. We're going to talk about what it means to be free, and two words that will be really important that relate very tightly to that idea is fear and faith. You can't find freedom until you acknowledge the allure of captivity and what, the allure of what holds you captive. Let me give you just a couple plain vanilla examples of this. This is Zionsville. I know this doesn't apply to any of you, but hypothetically, this is what it might look like. You manipulate your relationships out of fear you won't get your needs met. Or maybe you work 80 plus hours a week out of fear you won't have what you need. You won't be able to provide for yourself or that you won't be able to maintain an image that you have of yourself that's really important to you.
You get into a line of work that you hate because you're afraid that you'll lose the love and acceptance of people important to you, maybe your parents, maybe someone else. You drink or eat or smoke or misuse sex to numb feelings of fear. Instead of dealing with what's actually causing you to be afraid, you do stuff that helps you manage it, like a drug. Well, not like a drug, it is a drug. It, it helps you manage those fears. I would define freedom this way. Freedom is the willingness to walk into what God has for us. Let me say that again. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Freedom is the willingness to walk into what God has for us. I want you to notice I did not say ability. Everybody sitting in the blue chairs out here and everyone in this room has the ability. All of us can choose to believe. It just is what it is. We can all choose to believe. The question is, are we willing? So freedom is the willingness to walk into what God has for us. Now, here's our other key word, one of our other key words. Fear is the primary barrier to freedom. And captivity or slavery is often the result of inadequate solutions to our fear. We're afraid of things and we're coming up with solutions that don't relate to God, that are not God. These inadequate solutions, they're always sin. Our inadequate solutions to fear, they're always sin because you're turning to something that is not God and asking it to do something that only God can do. You're literally making something else God. Do you know what the Bible calls that? Idolatry. That's idolatry. Back in the day, in the Bible times, idolatry looked one way, right? They, they had uh, rituals and they had um, monuments and temples that they would worship, that they would hold up and they would bow down to. A lot of that related to the weather and to fertility. And my point holds true. Why? Well, because they're afraid. <laughs> because you need rain. If you don't have rain, you starve. And if you don't reproduce, you die. But we do that today. We're really not that different. It just looks different. We just take it. To, we have a way different culture. Lots of different features to it. It's a different time. But what's the same is we'll look to almost anything. And in particular, we'll look to good things. We'll look to good things and make those God. We'll look to good things. Sometimes we even look to God's actual provision and begin looking to that more than to God himself, more than to the giver of the gift. Abraham really, I mean, you, the Bible's replete with examples of this, but Abraham shows us what freedom looks like. God made a huge promise to Abraham, and it had three components. I don't think this is a spoiler to anybody. He would be the father of many nations, and there would be a vast number of descendants. Uh, he'd be inheriting a land that God would give him, and that he would be fruitful. This is uh, Genesis 17, 4 through 8. This, this promise is outlined God said to him, said to Abraham, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you, and for generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan 
hit pause. So in your mind, the whole promised land, okay? The, that whole strip immediately to the right of the Mediterranean Sea, in the Fertile Crescent, it's a huge chunk of land. Where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. That, that is a vision of freedom. Can you picture that? Can you, like, imagine that you're Abraham and God is telling you that and you're, you're trying to kind of mentally and emotionally move into that promise and you're asked, what would that be like to have million, untold millions, uncountable millions of descendants and all this land is ours? It's like we have a nation. It's like this vision of a life that's so big. Abraham could never be the architect of that. It's light years past what any human being could do. It's huge. The thing about it is, is that it all hinges on Abraham and Sarah having a child. Fair enough. We all know how that takes place. Except that Sarah's barren. She's not able to have kids. And Abraham, as Paul so sensitively puts it, his body is as good as dead. He's too old to have kids. So in order for Abraham and Sarah to move in to this promise, if they're, if they're going to move into what God has for them, they're going to have to take those fears and they're going to have to put those on the table and they're going to have to choose to believe. Somehow, God will make this happen. And he does. It's a miracle. Took them a little while to get there. I think it was Sarah that laughed at first. I love how patient God is with us. He doesn't just strike us dead. Sarah laughs at him, and, you know, he still treats with her. He still, he still deals with us. He shows up as only God can. The story's not over yet. This is Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham... Here I am, he replied. And then God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, in case there's any doubt, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. It's not possible to overemphasize how significant that is. The whole promise from the time that God called Abraham out of Ur and he left everything and went to a land that God said he would show him. Everything is hinging on this. Isaac is the miracle child. It all hinges on him. And Abraham and Sarah both would know this because of the little thing with Hagar before, right? They kind of tried to do it in their own power and manipulate a way to move forward. And God made it abundantly clear that that was not the way it was going to move forward, that it was going to come through a biological heir, someone that came from Abraham and Sarah. And here's the point. The path to the promise that God had for Abraham, it required absolute faith in God. Abraham had to turn to God with all of his fears in order to move forward into this promise. I mean... You don't even have to be a parent to be able to kind of gleam, glam onto what that might have felt like as Abraham walked with his son, who was clearly old enough to carry 
some of the materials that they would need up the side of that mountain. It's his son, his only son. It's a miracle, the basis of the promise. Abraham had to acknowledge that God was able to do whatever he said he would do, even if that seemed hopeless and bewildering to him. And you guys, that's the cost of freedom. You want to be free? You can be free. But you're going to have to go where you don't want to go. Not because that's a value in and of itself, but because there's no way, for, there's no way else for God to show you that he can be God for you. We just our hearts are just too wayward. We're just too quick to look to other things as sources of comfort. And y'all, I'm in that with you. I, I'm, I should be standing down and not over you. I, we're all like that. I have things that I look to, that I trust, that I tend to trust. I don't know if you've noticed that you know, life tends to be that way. Sometimes it can feel like God is determined to lead us into situations that require this kind of faith, and they can feel excruciating. I have some news that might feel, it's not bad news, it might feel like bad news right now. It's not. But the road to freedom typically leads directly into the things that you fear the most. It will take you into those things that you fear. There's a great scene in the movie The Empire Strikes Back where young Luke Skywalker, he's such a punk, he's, uh, he's all bragging to Yoda about, you know, he's not afraid of anything. That's kind of his theme. He's not afraid of anything. And Yoda says, you know, he's on Dagobah on this jungle planet, and Yoda says, you got to go into this cave. And Luke says, well, what's in there? And Yoda, the wise sage, he goes, well, nothing that you don't take in with you. And Luke looks right at him and says, I'm not afraid. And Yoda comes right back and says, you will be. You will be. It's kind of like that. The road to freedom leads directly into the things that you fear and probably the things you fear the most. If you want to walk into what God has for you, which is how we've defined freedom, whether that's in your relationships, in your work, in your own personal development, in your own vision for your, your life, you will have to confront fears. That, the road takes you directly into those. In 2007, uh, my family and I moved here from Boise, Idaho. I grew up in Washington State, but we lived for, in Boise, Idaho uh, for about a year and a half. Uh, and we were working with crew on the campus of Boise State University. Um, but deep down inside, I felt like I, I had musical giftings and ability, and I, I had a desire and a passion to use those for the kingdom. It just seemed like the right thing to do. And uh, full transparency, and I wanted that. That's what I wanted. I wanted to be able to do that. Uh, my motives weren't completely, you know, pure, as our motives never are. But at the core, that's really what it was about. God, you, I think you like it when I play guitar. I really want to use this to leverage your kingdom. I want to use this for good purposes, to bless people and build your, build your kingdom. So in 2007, we sold our house uh, at a pretty big loss. That, that was another, another whole story, subject for a sermon on another time. And we uprooted. We had just moved from Washington only a year and a half before that. And so we uprooted again and we made this trek all the way over to this weird state that I knew nothing about called Indiana. Maybe you've heard of it. 
And I have vivid memories of driving down the freeway. We took two cars. Karen's mom, my mother-in-law, was kind enough to fly out and to help us to make this transition. We, she was uh, in the van with the kids, and then I was in our, our other car driving by myself. And I remember driving along the freeway and just feeling this fear in the pit of my gut. What, what if I just made the biggest mistake of my life? What if Karen feels like she made the biggest mistake of hers? What if I show up at this ministry and they don't like me? What if I'm not good enough? What if it doesn't work? What if I'm not able to do the work that I really, that I'm moving my entire family all the way across the country to do? What then? Might seem cruel, but you know, God didn't, he didn't, didn't pop up with an answer. I almost felt like sometimes he was agreeing with me. Yeah? Yes, son. Could happen. But what I've come to know as I look back on that, on that time, huge fear and driving out into the unknown. And by the way, some of the things that I feared did come to pass. There, there were some things. Again, it's a story for another time. But some of those things actually did come to pass. The real question, you guys, though, is this. If God did not put us in positions like that, would we ever go to him at all? Would you? If he didn't strip away the things that you look to, the things that we all just so reflexively cling to, like a drowning person, you know, grabbing onto a life preserver... If he didn't take those things away, would you go to him at all? I don't know what your answer is to that. My answer in my life is that I'm really not so sure. I think when I was young, I would have been like young Luke Skywalker. I'm not afraid of anything. I'll cling to you, Lord, like Peter. I'll stand by you, Lord. I'm not so sure now think I'd rather be rooted in reality of who, you know, I think I know who I am better, and it causes me to reach out to him and trust him more. The real question, you guys, is if he didn't strip those things away, would, would we trust him at all? How, and think of the lyrics to the song that we just sang by Lauren Daigle, that song about rescue, how can God begin to show you his capacity to be God for you, unless he's all you have? Unless there's nothing else for you to cling to. To illustrate the total futility of our idols, he takes them away. And he takes us to places where they can't help us. He strips us of those things. And he takes us beyond ourselves. Here's a conclusion. You guys, fear, fear is a reality of life. We all feel it. I, I almost wished we could end with that quote from C.S. Lewis. It's so perfect. It's so spot on. There's a million things we can be afraid of and a million more that we haven't thought of that are possibilities. But faith, 
one of our key words, faith in God's goodness and love is the muscle that we flex in order to deal with fear. That's how we deal with fear. There's a lot of ways you can deal with fear. We talked about those. You can take that in a lot of directions, and they are all insufficient. When we are afraid, what we have to learn is that God is able. We have to start learning how to transfer that fear and take it to the appropriate place. There's no shame in being afraid. We're all afraid. It's what you do with it. The more we experience God meeting us in our fears, the more our faith will grow. This is a reality. Counselors call this a mismatching experience. Did you know that our brains, they're wired to learn this way? You have an experience and it turns out a certain way and later in life you have a similar experience. And your mind will, of course, start to recall that similar experience and go, oh, that time it went this way, so maybe I should prepare myself. But when you have a mismatching experience, your brain automatically, it forces it to think in different ways. It causes you to connect different groups of neurons. Scientists call this neuroplasticity. Did you know your minds literally are renewed? It's not just words. Your brain changes. But in order for that to happen, you, you have to have a different experience. You don't tell it to do this. This is, just, this is just how humans are. This is how God made us, right? So you have a different experience. It's similar to, to something that happened in the past, but a different outcome. And it forces your mind to adjust to that. It's called a mismatching experience. It's the foundation of a lot of change in, in counseling. Sorry to those of you who are counselors, not to give the secret away, but there it is. Our growing faith, as our faith grows, it leads to an experience of freedom in life. We find the courage to move towards a God-sized vision of life, which by definition is way more, like Abraham, it's way more than what you could do for yourself. You can't construct that. You don't even know what it is. And it's, I promise you, it's far bigger than what you think it is. Here's the nutshell. If you're taking notes, this will be easier to scribble down. Here it is. Freedom requires faith. You want to be free, and remember, our definition of freedom is the willingness to walk into what God has for us. That is how you get to a sense of freedom in life. Freedom requires faith. Fear is the barrier to faith. Anytime we don't want to trust God, it's almost always attributable to you're afraid of something. Why else, why else wouldn't you trust God? You're afraid that, for whatever reason, you're afraid. But faith is the appropriate antidote to fear. I am not discounting other things that can help us in life. You know, there are medications and there are different things, and th those are great. Those help us too. We Chemicals are the big part of who we are, and there's the fallenness of the world to factor in. But at the core, learning how to trust God in those moments, that's the appropriate antidote to our fear. And we have to be in a process of learning that God, God is capable. He is able. Even if what you are experiencing and what you're afraid of is partly your fault, or maybe even all your fault, that's great news, right? That's really good news. At any moment with God, you can stop and do an about face and say, hey, I was wrong. I don't even know how to back out of this now, but I know that I was wrong, and so I'm just going to stop digging. I'm in a hole. I'm just, the first thing I'm going to do is stop digging. 
You'd be amazed, or maybe you wouldn't. Maybe some of you maybe know this firsthand, but you'd be amazed at how quickly God responds to that. His anger and wrath, that was poured out on the cross. That was dealt with. God has no felt need at this point. For people that trust in him, he doesn't have a felt need to beat you up for that or to punish you. Sure, there's consequences, but at this point, if you're a believer, if you are in Christ, those things, those things are not punitive. Those things are for your growth and for your development. That He has your good in mind. Sometimes what's good for us is very painful, but, but it's not punitive. Fear is a reality of life. It's one of our words, fear. Faith, God's goodness, is the muscle that we flex to deal with our fear. And the more we experience God meeting us in our fears, the more our faith grows. We have a mismatching experience. And we begin to learn, oh, I remember. Picture what it will be like. Like Picture what it was like for Abraham at the end of his life. He's looking back on all these instances. Okay, yes, I'm terrified by what's in front of me, but I remember all these times that God met me. Or maybe David, when he was a young man out in the wilderness, you know, tending sheep, all the things that he had to deal with. He developed this, this bank, this litany of times when God met him. Circle back to the Indiana story, dri- driving out here. Some of the things I was afraid of happened, and that was hard. There was, some of it was work-related, some of it was relational, and yeah, those things were hard, and there was some loneliness. It was tough when our children were little to be so far from our whole lives, our home, people that knew us. But you know what? God's vision for the life of the Erstein family, it was, it was way bigger than that. The litany of things that he provided. He gave us a home. I've never missed a meal as a supported missionary, I have never missed a meal. I've never had a short paycheck. We have a backlog of memories with, uh, as a family that we never could have probably had had we been closer to home. I've had experiences work-wise and musically that have been some of the most enriching things of my life. I would never trade them. I experienced God building a life for us in Indiana, in, in a place that I have no, no real ties to at all. And he built a life for us. He gave us friends, gave us Eagle Church. Wow. You better believe I think about that when I'm afraid. He did it before. He'll do it again. He's always provided. I don't know how. I don't know what it will look like. I'm not sure what he's leading into, but I know that he will. So how do you move into this? And then, then we're done, I promise. How do you move into this? I call this the daily journal method. This is the daily journal method. This is how you can, one way that you can start to orient your life towards like taking your fear to Jesus and inviting him into that. And if you do this, I can almost guarantee you will start to feel, I think some of you out there, I think some of you, You haven't actually met God yet. You know about God. You're not his enemy. You know about him, but you don't know him because I don't think you really know him until he's all you need. You don't know him until 
You're at Abraham's spot, you know. It's all on the line. What, what will I do if you don't show up? And y'all, he shows. He always shows. Because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. The journal method. Step one. Here's how you do it. Get a journal or a notebook. When you are spending alone time with God, first step, the first thing that you do is you ask yourself, what am I afraid of and, and especially why? So you list the fears and then you play those out. You know, I'm afraid of this because you try to take it back as far as you can. And what you need here is non-judgmental curiosity. God's not beating you up and whipping you for this. Let it surface. You're in a safe place. God will sit there with you. What am I afraid of? And he will sit there with you and let those things come up. Allow yourself to feel those things. Don't tamp it down and don't, you know, just let them come up and acknowledge them. Write it all down. Step two, how can I trust God with this? As you are sitting there spending time with him, open your mind, and this is a choice, open your mind to the possibility that God is actually able to meet you in this. Even if you don't see how right now, it might seem hopeless. I'm sure in a room this size, I know there are some of you sitting out there that feel like you are facing situations that are completely hopeless. And I'm, I, I understand that. I feel that way about some things in my life sometimes too. Um, but it's important that we choose to open our minds that, yeah, but maybe even, even yet now, God would meet me in this. And as you're doing that, be ready to write down, you've got your journal there, be ready to write down anything that occurs to you in this moment. Don't worry about making mistakes. As you keep doing this habit, yes, you will write some stuff that will probably not be very relevant, but that will become obvious. You're not, you know, this isn't about writing heresy or something like that. Just try to, try to perceive what God might be saying. Be ready to write down anything that occurs to you in this moment. Step three is really important. Stay awake. And what I mean by that is, as you proceed into the things that you fear, stay alert as to how God helps you. That's why the journaling, why this is so helpful, because you're going to have a list of all the things that you're afraid of, and then you're going to be writing about them and circling back. And you're going to be thinking about, how did God meet me in this? Okay? You will start to build that. You're going to start to create some of those mismatching experiences. Oh, wow, I remember back on June 13th, I was really wound up about this thing. And God, God stepped in. I'm not worried about it now. It was resolved. It's over. Actually, the biggest problem is I forgot to thank him. He resolved it, and I just went on my merry way. We all do that. You know it's true. I do it. We all do it. There's a great scene in the movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, where uh, two of the main characters get saved from a flood. You know, they're praying, this flood comes in. I think I'm getting this right. Uh, they're praying, and this massive flood comes in, and it looks like everyone's going to be wiped out. And then they pop up. They're literally straddled on their own coffins. God saves them out of this. And then they go on their merry way. You know, they, they utterly forget that they were just saved from this total calamity. It's kind of funny and a little sad. How did it resolve? And don't look past partial answers. Sometimes God's answers to these things is he allows you to live to fight another day. Finally, one day at a time, okay? You all are smart enough, all of you are smart enough to sit here and look into the future and, and think of things that could be terrifying. Y'all are wise enough to know the world can throw you curveballs 
like that, and some of them can be brutally painful. Any of us can continually look into the future and find things to worry about. But we want to remember Jesus' words in this moment. Sufficient to the day is the trouble. Is the trouble they're in. I, I love this part because one day is a lot more manageable. The 12, Alcoholics Anonymous and the other 12-step groups that have, that have grown out of that framework, they all, this is something that they all spout all the time, and for good reason. It's smart. Jesus taught it. One day at a time. You don't know what tomorrow will look like, and it, it's irrelevant. You may not even have tomorrow. As my mom used to say when we were complaining, you might not even be alive then. I think what she was thinking is if you keep complaining, you won't be alive then, but I don't know. I love, love, love Pastor Eric's definition of righteousness. It's so spot on and so simple. Do you all remember what it is? Who can tell me what it actually is? What's the definition of righteousness according to Pastor Eric? Just shout it out. Okay, you don't have to. It's doing the next right thing. Just do the next right thing. I don't know what's happening next week. I'm not sure I know what's happening after dinner. But right now, at 11, 10 a.m., we're late, uh, I, I know the next thing for me to do is this, and so I'm going to do it. And I'm going to let that be enough for now. And then I'm just going to keep doing that uh, one step at a time. The next right thing for me to do is conclude. So thank you for listening to me, letting me uh, bring what God has been showing me. I hope it is a blessing to you. My, my prayer for you, which I will pray in just a moment, is that you would experience a wonderful freedom in life. It's so exciting to know God. It's confounding sometimes. And you can say that. That's okay. He's big enough to hear that. But it's so awesome. You haven't lived until he's met you somewhere that you thought, you thought was hopeless. I would almost say you probably don't really know him until you've experienced that. But as someone who's experienced that on some levels throughout the course of my life, y'all, if, if you knew my past, all of it, and I'll share it with anybody for the price of a cup of coffee, but if you knew it all, you'd be so encouraged. How does a buffoon of this magnitude wind up preaching and leading in a, any kind of Christian community? I don't know. It's the Lord. Because he does these things. He meets us in all these things, and he's able, and he loves us. And that's the best news ever. That's, that's, the, that's the best possible antidote to fear. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you allow us to be on a journey. You did not create automatons. You almost demand that we engage and trust you you will not move forward in life dragging reluctant people along with you. You rather require that we trust you. You ask us to engage and to have skin in the game. Lord, to know you is to love you. You are awesome. Thank you for why you would deal and treat with people like us is, is beyond comprehension, but you do over and over again, and you gave your son for us to prove the point. So Jesus, I pray that you would help us as a community. I, want, I really do pray that Eagle would be the kind of community where we're constantly learning to take our fears to you, that we would be flexing that muscle of faith 
when it comes to the things that we fear. God, would you grant us all kinds of mismatching experiences as we move forward in life that would remind us and help build our faith that you are good, you are able, you will show up. That's who you are. That's just what you do. And I thank you for this community and for this opportunity to draw near uh, corporately. In Jesus' name, amen.